How you doing? Happy Easter? Easter. Or Merry Easter. I don't know what you said, but, you know, whatever. Um, I hope you found a seat. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of funny. I get up here every week just to tell you guys about our softball team because I think it's awesome. So I'm going to tell you again, if you're new, just go with me, whatever. Um, our soft, our, we have a co-ed softball team and a men's softball team. Our co-ed softball team won our game this week 33-0. to zero. That's what we did. We are like... And so at the end of it, we were, we'd like hit the ball, and we felt so bad, we'd just go station to station. So it like somebody hit it to the fence, and we'd go one base, and we'd stop. And so we didn't know if that's worse or not. But we were trying to be really nice about it. And so on Friday night, the guys team, uh, they get... And I guess the first inning, they're down 12-0. And then they come back and they win 23, I down 23 to 19. So then I have a de- one of our deacons goes, you always talk about softball. You need to talk about small groups. So, uh, <laughs> small groups are important. If, it, if I have a choice between, you know, I want you to be at playing softball or small groups, they're both kind of small groups, but... <laughs> Go to a small group. You know, uh, David is right here. This is David. He's in charge of our small groups. And if you uh, want to be in a small group, have questions about small groups, I would encourage you to, to talk to him uh, after the service today. All right? We good? All right. I'm keeping this short and sweet today. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're reading the God's Word. This is John chapter 20, verse 29. It says this, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would move in the midst of this place, that you would speak truth to our hearts, and that we would be people who look at you and follow you because you called us to. God, we wouldn't be distracted by everything else around us, but we would say, I will follow you. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open to John chapter 20. It's where we're going to start. Uh, there, are, there are essentially four accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Mark were written first. Now there's some debate on which one of those are written first. It goes back and forth. But Matthew and Mark were written first. Then you have Luke written after that. And the last Gospel account that was written was John. John is 90% unique to John. It's as kind of like John looked at the other Gospels and, and he said, okay, these guys wrote about this, now I'm going to write about these things because I think this is important and they didn't really cover this. He doesn't tell stories the same way. He doesn't write the same as the others write. And he does all these things with a purpose. So John chapter 20, verse 1 starts like this. Early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Good for you. See, you're, you're already there. Uh, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Which I guess if you're Peter, that can be a little condescending, right? Well, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Now, at the time as John was written, it's not popular to use your own name. when you write. So when you would write something and you put yourself into the account, you would come up with a phrase that would describe who you were. So John's phrase is, the one Jesus loved. Now, it could be that it is written later. Maybe all the other disciples are dead and gone. And so John can actually say that without getting in a whole lot of trouble. I'm the one Jesus loved. So, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. And this is bad because we, we lost Jesus. <laughs> this is bad. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. 
Now, isn't, that's awesome, right? Is it just me? I mean, that, that's me. So, not only does Jesus love me more, but Peter is, uh, he's, he's old and he's out of shape, so I run faster than Peter as well. Okay? But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Because when you outrun people, you usually get there, what, later? I don't know. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, what did he do? Who had reached the tomb first? Again. Also went inside. And then what did he do? He saw and believed, unlike Peter. So he's the one Jesus loved, he runs faster, and he believes. Verse 9, they still do not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the tomb is empty. And for Christians, we go, woohoo, it's, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, this is the crux of human history. Everything turns on Jesus. B.C.A.D., the Garden of Eden, you have the fall of man. Here in the garden, Jesus conquers death. He has set us free. Human history will never be the same. And John wants you to know the tomb is empty. Everything has changed. God's promise has come true. And he runs faster. (laughs) So what he wants you to know. You see these two things side by side, resurrection and rivalry. Side by side, who has more faith, who can run faster, who is loved more. Turn to one chapter over to John 21. You know, it, here at this point, right in the account of the resurrection, you see two people with a strange sort of little rivalry thing going on. It's interesting, later in church history, you see that Peter and John worked very closely together to do a lot of things. Now, Peter is also the guy who denies Jesus three times, which John records in John 18. You know, Jesus carried to his false trials, to false trial, to false trial. Peter's kind of following. A little servant girl comes up and goes, don't you know him? You know, you're a Galilean. You, you've got, he's like, oh, I don't know him. And three times he denies Jesus. Now, John 21 records one of the last meetings that Jesus has after the resurrection with his disciples. And after the whole meeting is done, then Jesus and Peter go walking for a take take walk along the Sea of Galilee. I got a picture for you. It's like, oh, that's so nice. Okay, there you go. Uh, 21.15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, people think that the word these is a reference to the other disciples. Maybe it's a reference to other people, you know, more than peer pressure. Some people think it's a reference to fishing, whatever. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. This is a euphemism for be a pastor, take care of people. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So Jesus asks him this question three times. Now, the last time Jesus asks it a different way. It says, Peter was hurt because uh, Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? I mean, maybe Jesus is like, how many times do you deny me? Three, maybe. He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you, said Jesus. Feed my sheep. So he gives him this sacred calling. Then verse 18, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And now Peter's response to this. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. So John's nearby and says, This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, 
Jesus has a sacred, holy, deep moment here with Peter. Peter, follow me. I have a great life plan for you. I have work for you to do. And Peter's response is, what about him? What about him? Verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die because back then people would take Jesus' words and they'd twist them all around. So unlike today. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, if you look at first century documents of how Peter and John actually died, you find some interesting stuff. Fox's Book of Martyrs actually chronicles much of this. John Fox says of John, From Ephesus he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed that he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. But he doesn't die. Domitian afterwards banished him to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalled him. He was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. I think that's funny, because the only thing he escaped was the death part, not necessarily the violent, because you get dropped in oil. So he's tortured, and so he dies at an old age. Peter, Jerome says of Peter, that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring, because he said he was unworthy to be crucified after the same manner and form as the Lord was. So Peter is crucified for his faith upside down. He demanded to do that because he was unworthy to die like Jesus died. And so Jesus tells Peter, you will be led places you do not want to go, indicating the kind of death that he would die, a prophecy of sorts. And then he gives him the sacred calling, follow me. And Peter's response becomes, what about him? Jesus' response, what is that to you? What is that to you? This is like you and I, because God has given us a calling to step into the life he wants to give us. And we get sidetracked, sidetracked all the time because we say, well, what about and what about and what about, and we miss our unique, true path. What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 27, if you brought a Bible. The idea of not recognizing this happens, I think, in small and very significant ways. Uh, Jacob and Esau, in Genesis 27, they are these two brothers. They're twins. Esau is a couple seconds older than Jacob. Jacob is younger. Jacob is a mama's boy. He doesn't like to work. He uh, has an iPod. He probably listens to Mariah Carey and Clay Aiken. Okay, that's, that's Jacob. Now, Esau, Esau is older by a, a couple seconds, and he is very manly. He is he's sweaty, and he is hairy. He's like Ted Nugent in sandals. Okay, so get the picture. Now, in this culture, a symbolic thing happens between the father and the oldest son. It's called the firstborn blessing. The father would bring the oldest son in, and he would lay his hands on his son, and he would basically give all the rights to be the head of the family to his oldest son. Now, Esau is the oldest, and Isaac, his dad, loves Esau. And so Isaac wants to give Esau this blessing. But God, before Jacob was born, God promised this blessing to Jacob. He says, Jacob's going to get the blessing. Now, Jacob wants the blessing. It had been promised to him, but he does not trust God to actually come through. So when Isaac gets really old and he starts to go blind, Jacob and his mother hatch a scheme. So he puts on some, some goat skins on his body, which tells you something because that means he will feel like his brother now, which, ew, right? <laughs> so that tells you something right there. 27.18 says, He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Now, Jewish writers put significant details into their writings so you don't have to pay, we pay close attention to what they say. What are the words Jacob says? Verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am who? 
Esau. I am Esau, your firstborn. When you first meet Jacob as a grown-up man in Scripture, he is pretending to be somebody else. In verse 24, even down a little farther, and, and Isaac is listening. He's like, but the voice sounds like Jacob, but he feels like Esau. And it says, are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. And so again, when you meet Jacob, he is acting like someone else. He gives another name. And at this point, because Esau himself is very manly and angry, he wants to kill his brother. So Jacob, like a girl, runs away. And he runs to his uncle Laban's house where he lives in slave labor for years. He acquires a couple wives, a whole bunch of kids. And then finally, after like 30 years of turmoil and hardship in his life, he decides to go back home again and reconcile with his brother. So God has had him on this journey where his life just been crazy to get him to the point where he is. So he starts to go back home. Uh, when he's about ready to meet his brother Esau, he sends his family to the other side of a river to keep them safe, and he stays on one side by himself. While he's there that night, he doesn't get to sleep. Jesus shows up in a wife beater and a pimp hat and beats him up all night long. It's a great story. So, you know, if you're, I'm assuming, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty old, so he gets up to go pee again. And, you know, and Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, boom! And they wrestle all night long. Jesus gets down onto his level. It's kind of like if you're a dad and you have kids, you get down on their level and wrestle with them. And your kids are like, oh, I'm going to beat you. And you're like, oh, you're so strong. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus gets down and he, kind of, and he wrestles with Jacob all night long. All night long. And after it's over, Jesus gets ready to go. He's like, okay, I toughened you up. You're going to be a man. You're going to go meet your brother now. Toughens him up. And all of a sudden, Jacob grabs on to Jesus. And he goes, I will not let you go until you bless me. And in Genesis 32, 27, it says, The man asked him, What is your name? This is significant that two things would go together. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Jacob. The journey Jacob has been on made himself into this man that could simply learn how to be Jacob. It says, The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And I wonder if Jacob's like, Ah, I spent all this time learning to be okay being Jacob. And now... Now, actually, at this point, what happens is that now God can finally take him into the life that in the person he was always supposed to be. He says, uh, Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome, meaning with God you overcome. Now, maybe the problem with you and I is that we're not okay with who God made us to be. You know, maybe we struggle with that. We wish we were taller. We wish we were smarter. We wish we were better looking. We wish we were skinnier. We wish we were heavier. We wish we were blonder or brunette or, or redheaded or... However that goes, maybe we wish for a different family. A central struggle with human beings is that we are not comfortable in our own skin. And so we say, God, why didn't you give me this? God, why didn't you give me that? Why did I have to be born this way? How come you allowed me to go through this thing? Why, why, why? And we struggle with God because we don't trust Him and we're not okay with what He made. And then that will manifest itself in our relationships because if you're not okay with who God made you to be, you will start to envy everybody else around you. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be my brother. Always wanted to be my brother. Uh, he was smarter. He's better looking than me. He's much more athletic. I thought my parents liked him better. We were, we were playing. Uh, his, all of his friends were, were out in the street playing baseball one time. You know, and I'm a little kid. I'm like, yeah, baseball. You know, so I go running out in the street, and I annoy them enough, and finally, boom, I get a baseball in the eyeball. And so, you know, that's not good when you're a kid. So I go run over to my mom, who's at our neighbor's house, and I'm like, boom. She opens the door. I'm like, ah! and she's all, what'd you do? I'm like, ah! it's me. What did I do? 
you know, th- this is, I think Jacob struggles because he wants to be Esau. And Jacob needed to simply learn to be okay being Jacob. What is Esau to you, Jacob? You follow me. In Jewish history, you read about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Up to this point, it's just the God of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob has not stepped into that role yet. How will God use him if he is always wishing he was somebody else? And that is a good question for you and I. How will we be the people God calls us to be if we were angry at him for making us the way that we are or always wishing we were somebody else? Only when Jacob can be Jacob does God say, Now you can become the father of a nation. Now you are Israel. Only then. If you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I think this is true for individuals as well as groups and their understanding of who they are. This can be true of families, can be true of organizations. I think it's even true of churches. I mean, some churches look around and they're like, well, if we had their staff, or if we had their building, or if we had their money, or if we had their people, blah, 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 whatever. This, uh, turn to, uh, like I said, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4. This is the nation of Israel doing this. So, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, which is always a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> You're old. <laughs> and your sons not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Such as all the other nations have. The plan is that God would rule his people, that they would be different from every other nation upon the earth, that God would be their leader, but they want what everybody else has. I mean, they're like, well, we need a king. If we only had a king, if we had someone to tax us and someone to oppress us and and make stupid laws and expand the government, then we'd be there. We we would have arrived like those other nations. We'd be happy. Verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you, Samuel, they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who reign over them will do. So this is what you think you want. This is actually what's going to happen. Verse 11, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Means when when these things go into battle, they're going to die first. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, a commander of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Sounds like America a little bit. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. God has a unique calling for his people, but they want to be like their neighbors. Our neighbors have a king. We want one too. And eventually these kings come and the kings do exactly as God says. And eventually it leads to more wars and more taxation to the point where the kingdom fragments and eventually all the Israelites end up dead, captured, or in exile. An entire nation collapses and becomes destroyed, becomes slaves in another country. Why? Its roots begin with the people who are unwilling to step into the unique calling and be like no other people on the earth. That's how it starts. I think Jesus would say, you know, what about them? What are they to you? You follow me. They got what they wanted, and it led to their destruction. 
John 21, 21, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What is that to you? Peter asks the question, and it gets returned with another question. What is that to you? I mean, how often do we as people maybe lose our joy because we're thinking and obsessing about something else? Turn to Exodus chapter 20. You're like, man, that's a lot of turning. Yes, it is. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 records what's called the Ten Commandments. You guys all heard about those, right? Okay. Sometimes they're like in lawsuits. So, yeah, just, we know about this. Uh, the first nine of the Ten Commandments are things that are externally observable. Like if someone murders somebody, you can see that. It's like, oh, dead, blood. Yes, I see. Look at that. That's, that's terrible. If someone steals something, you can see that. Or if someone steals from you, you no longer see that thing. You're like, oh, it's, it's not there anymore. If someone doesn't honor their parents, you can see that. If someone builds a false god statue, you can see that. You can see that the first nine are externally observable and the tenth is, tenth is totally different. So I'll give you the last six just to get to where we're going. Uh, starting in 2013. Number six, you shall not commit murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then you get to number ten. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his donkey. And I know you're all going, oh, but they got great donkeys. I know. It's like don't covet their iPod, their TV, their car, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if someone is coveting, how do you know they're coveting? I could be coveting right now. I could totally be coveting. I could be looking around going, wow, that's a cool green sweater. I wish I had a green sweater. That'd be awesome. And I'm coveting your sweater. You know, I, you know, you can look at me and go, oh, well, there's really nothing here. But, you know, <laughs> but you could be coveting the green sweater, too. Sorry. <laughs> you could be looking and coveting something that somebody else has. You just don't know because we do it internally. Why is the 10th commandment so different from the other nine? An ancient commentary actually on Exodus says that the 10th commandment is a reward. It's a reward. For when you obey God and we live as God teaches us to live, you won't want anybody else's stuff. When you find your place in God and you live true to the life God calls us to live, then you won't want somebody else's life or somebody else's stuff because you will be content with your own. Instead of reading, you will not covet, the subtlety could be you won't covet because you won't have any reason to. In Job chapter 5, Job is an uplifting book, sarcasm intended. Uh, you know, if you... If you really want to just go for it, turn on some emo music and read some Job, you'll be ecstatic in no time. It's great. Uh, Job 5.2 says this, Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. This is Hebrew poetry. So they will say one thing, then rephrase it in the second line. So it's like resentment, uh, envy, fool, simple. A simple and a fool are the ones who never take a step back and they reflect on the error of their lives. They never take a step back and say, you know, why do I keep dating the same type of guy? They never say, uh, why do I have no money when I always spend it on beer, Slurpees, and lotto tickets? You know, they never ask themselves these questions like, uh, why am I not fulfilled in my relationships? Or, or why do I keep doing the same thing and expecting something else to actually happen? Why do I never have this satisfaction? A fool or a simple person never asks themselves those questions. Resentment kills envy slaves. When somebody spends their time longing for what other people have or with somebody else's life while not looking and reflecting about themselves and their own situation, they have gotten themselves into a full, simple situation. And Scripture says it will ultimately kill you inside. Peter, I have an amazing life for you. Lord, what about him? Peter's thoughts are, what about John? Is this life going to be fair? 
And the same thing is true for us. God has an amazing life for us. That doesn't mean problem or trial free, but he has an amazing life for us. One that is centered in his will, his joy, his strength. But we constantly keep asking, what about them? What about her? What about him? What they have? What about their money and their stuff and whatever? And we compare and we lose our joy. And when we do that, we become fools. Every once in a while, my wife and I uh, will go do something where I have to dress up. And if you've ever seen me in a suit, it's either a wedding or a funeral because I've got one suit and that's what I wear it for. That's it. Now, uh, you know, every once in a while, we'll go to a banquet or, or do something, something, you know. And, and usually when I do, I dress up. This is me dressed up, okay? I got a pair of slacks and a button-up shirt and a pair of tennis shoes, okay? This is usually how I dress up. And, and usually, I mean, she, and she looks gorgeous, you know, because we look like the princess and the pauper every time we go somewhere. And because she, she, she's great. But, you know, so when we do something like this, she sometimes goes out and buys something new. And so it got me to listening to some conversations that she, do you realize women have conversations with other women? Like, oh, what are you going to wear? Oh, what are you going to wear? Well, what color is it? What color is that? How much did it cost? Where'd you get it? That's amazing. They have these conversations <laughs> about this stuff. You know, exactly. Kristen Bill said this. She goes, do you know why the issue of what other women will wear to a banquet is important? When women walk into a banquet, the dominant thoughts for them will be, how do the other women look and how do I compare and relate to them? I mean, my wife's got to look good because I look like this. You know, so she is, you know, don't think I'm being trite when I, when I say this. But really, what is that to you? What is that to you? And maybe we say things like, well, what about her? Well, what is that to you? We have a myriad of ways that we try and get our success and our happiness and rate ourselves to other people around us. And we say, what about, what about, what about? When we should really be saying, what is that to me? What is that to Jesus? Is what we should be asking. This begins to show itself in resentment and envy. And it could be who is the faster runner. It could be who has a nicer dress. It could be that we are people who are simply unwilling to the hard work of letting Jesus examine our hearts and wrestle with us the same way he wrestled with Jacob to become comfortable in our own skin of who he made us to be, to live up to the calling that he has given all of us. And so when God says, what is your name? We can simply say our name. What is that to you? You are not your mother. You are not your father. Thank God. Right? You are not your boss. You are not your coworker. You're not your brother. You're not your sister. Thank God. Right? We have each been given a unique opportunity to live who God has called us to be and the life He intends for us to have. And we must be people who get rid of envy and resentment and simply follow in the life that Christ has called us to. Now, some of you here this morning, I don't know, maybe you don't attend a church regularly at all. It is Easter, and that's one of the days you're supposed to go, you know. You may go to work tomorrow. You may be asked about Easter at work. And you may feel the need to say, my wife drove me to church. Or my kids made me go. Or my parents made me go. Or whatever. You feel like you have to somehow please them with some response. You know what you say? What is that to you? In a nice way. <laughs> Do you say it in a bad way? You're going to get in a fight. <laughs> say it in a nice way. Well, you know what we talked about? What is that to you? Here, listen to the podcast. You'll get it in just a minute. There is only one person that you and I need to concern ourselves with what they think, and that is Christ. And if people mock you for that, what is that to you? What is that to you? You do not need to be anybody but who God made you to be, and you will only find that when you place your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. That is when you find out who you are supposed to be, always.
always. Anything else will kill your soul and you will die and you will shrivel up inside. Let me ask you a question. What's your name? Hello. <laughs> Jojo. Jojo. What's your name? One more time. What's your name? You follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. We come to communion every single week. And the point of communion is to reset and refocus us on what Jesus did. You take that cracker and you break it and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his body and his blood that was shed for us so that we could be a people who could follow him and be restored to him so that we could be the people that he intended for us to be. So we worship God through communion. We worship God through prayer. If you are here this morning and you have never realized this, if you have never come to a place where you've said, I need to trust my whole life into the arms of Jesus Christ. There'll be elders and deacons in the back of the room and they would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus. If you are a believer and you, are, and you struggle with this and you feel like, man, I'm always trying to please other people. I'm always trying to pray with them. They would love to pray with you. The band's going to come back up. I'm going to do a couple songs for you, with you. And when they, when they do these songs, songs are meant to take and reset and refocus us. As you take a few moments to pray, to take communion, to reflect upon the things that God wants to say to you so that we are not fools, but we have become wise by following Christ. Uh, we worship God by giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall, which are really cool because they're all steel and manly. There's one in the very back of the, back of the hallway back there too. Uh, you can also give online. I mean, we give because God gave so much to us, and so we give. Also, And then we worship God through fellowship. When we're done, don't just run out the door. Don't just run out the door here. Meet some other people. Get to know somebody else. Part of the reason that Jesus died and rose from the dead is so that we can also have reconciled relationships with other people. So get to know some other people. You know, maybe not like right in the back of the room because you'll never get out. But, you know, talk to some people. There's coffee in the back. Go ahead and drink it all. They did last week, you know. Use the bathrooms if you want. I don't care. You know. don't, don't, if you're a guy, don't talk to another guy in the bathroom. That's just awkward. You know. <laughs> but, but seriously, you guys should get to know each other because relationships are important. And Jesus has come so that we can have relationships with other people. So let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people, thank you that you enable us this great gift of laughter. And I think that when we laugh, you laugh with us. God, thank you for redeeming and restoring our lives. And I ask if there are people here this morning who have never stepped into a relationship with you, that you would prod their hearts and that they would hear your voice and they would come to know you so that they would step into this life, this great life that you have called them to. God, for all of us this morning, I ask that you would help us not to be those who get so caught up in a, in a fool situation and we can simply ask what do you want us to do God help us not to be those who are constantly looking at everybody else around us and simply listen to you and your voice and how you call us to live and how you call us to love this morning reset and renew and refocuses as your people. Amen.